The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Carrie Gillum. She was an investigative reporter with Reuters News for 17 years, covering the biotech industry, including the fight over GMO labeling. In October of 2015, she left the news agency and became research director for the U.S. Right to Know, a nonprofit that advocates for transparency in the food system. Ms. Gillum is a veteran journalist, researcher, and writer with more than 25 years' experience in the news industry covering corporate America. Since 1998, Gillum's work has focused on digging into the big business of food and agriculture. As a former senior correspondent for Reuters International News Service and a current contract researcher and freelance writer, Gillum specializes in finding the story behind the spin, uncovering both the risks and rewards of the evolving new age of agriculture. Her areas of expertise include biotech crop technology, agrochemicals, and pesticide product development, as well as the environmental impacts of the American industrialized food system. She has been recognized as one of the top journalists in the country covering these issues. Welcome, Ms. Gillum. It's great to have you. Oh, it's, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. Well, I've been reading your work for a number of years, and I think you do an incredible job of covering some of the same concerns that I have about the direction that our food industry is headed. And I just wanted to ask you, since you've been in this business for over two decades, what are some of the changes that you've seen as a journalist in terms of, say, trying to scratch through the surface and get to the truth? Oh, big question, isn't it? I think the pressure on journalists maybe has gotten tougher, at least for me. That's what I've experienced. I think it's gotten more sophisticated. I think um, we've seen some of the tactics that were revealed in the um, tobacco industry and the fight by the tobacco industry to deny and decry safety concerns about their products. You've really seen that spread and, and broaden to a number of other industries, and, and the food and ag industry is one of those that has adopted some of those tactics, setting up front organizations, funding other groups to support their science and their products, you know, funneling money to public universities and, and helping direct research findings that support their products and, and having operatives that attack journalists, mm-hmm. <laughs> scientists and, you know, academics and others, but attack journalists like me. It really has been eye-opening over the last several years to see the level of attack, I guess, being leveled upon people who are simply trying to just report the news, right, tell right. the truth about what's going on. Yeah. Or just asking questions seems to be illegal these days. I know that, you know, when I was questioning some of the safety of the, especially the herbicides, I know that we share concern about that because we're both moms and we care about the environment that will leave future generations. And certainly we would have a concern about herbicides. But I remember being in a debate-like setting with a Monsanto executive where my science was being questioned And if I shared stories, which is what the journalist does so well, 
But if I shared stories from my interactions with farmers, real problems that they had experienced, like drift problems, for example, or family illnesses, or my stories were questioned, it was like, don't be telling stories. We want you to focus on the science. But I don't think that we've got good science that we're working from. What are your thoughts on that? I think you can find science to support almost any notion, any product, any position you might want to do if you've got enough power and enough money. I've seen such an evolution. You know, you've a lot of, as you know, a lot of the science that the government relies on, that our regulatory systems rely on to approve products or deem them safe or unsafe, comes from the very corporations that make money off of these products. They essentially rely on these corporations to provide them the information they need to decide whether or not to allow this on the market, which just in and of itself seems crazy to me. Yeah. And of course, it's, you know, an issue of funding and priorities and and budgeting. You know, a lot of people aren't aware that the FDA doesn't require corporations that are putting GMO crops on the market, doesn't require them to even come before the FDA for any safety testing. Now, you know, they offer what they call a voluntary consultation process where they can talk to the company and ask questions and the company can provide answers and they can talk about it. And at the end, they generally send them a letter that says, okay, we don't have any more questions, you know, but remember, you're responsible for the safety of that product. And that, again, seems crazy to me because the corporations that really are controlling and directing the direction of our food supply you know, of course, their primary interest is profit, and it's supposed to be. But the primary interest that I have and, and other people who have children and families and everybody who eats, I assume, is to make sure things are safe, not only for our health but for our environment. So those are the things that I'm trying to look into and, and understand and communicate. Yeah, it would seem that the conflict of interest issue would bubble to the top and there would be outrage from anyone who would see that as being a problem in terms of can we trust this science, but it seems to just float on by as if it's not an issue. Right. No, I know. And we've had the land-grant universities and public academic scientists for decades, but of course, as funding for university research has become more scarce over the years, like everything else, it seems, you know, they've had to rely more and more on corporate grants, corporate gifts. And the extent to the influence that that money has, you know, on researchers is an open question, I guess. You know, we at U.S. Right to Know, the organization I joined, you know, we've done research. We've gotten emails through freedom of information requests that show that, in, at least in some cases, there are very tight collaborations between giant corporations and scientists who are supposed to be operating in the public interest, but who you see in these emails are collaborating very closely to merge their messaging with that of the big corporations. So. Mm-hmm. And you did a wonderful expose of Bruce Chassie on this, where we would think, well, he's affiliated with the University of Illinois. I think we, as as citizens of the United States, we are raised to trust certain categories of people. You know, we trust our parents, our teachers, doctors, and certainly individuals, as you say, at land-grant universities, whose charge is really to work in the public's best interest. And then there's Bruce Chassie and Kevin Folta at the University of Florida. Tell me what you discovered about them. Well, what the emails showed, I've described this before, literally my jaws were hanging open. My jaw was hanging open as I was reading some of these emails because I guess I'm still a bit naive. I still get just astounded 
the one email that really got to me was Monsanto was talking to Bruce Jassy. They were communicating back and forth in emails, and they had an idea to set up this website, this nonprofit academics review and a website. And basically, Bruce Chassey could present himself, as he does, you know, as a very esteemed veteran scientist and academic, and he could write analysis and reviews, negative reviews about other people, journalists and other scientists and things who, you know, maybe were critical of GMOs or critical of glyphosate. And Monsanto was discussing this with him, and a former PR manager for Monsanto was involved, and they're discussing how they really don't want people to know Monsanto's involved. You know, we really don't want Monsanto to be tied to this publicly, but here's what you could do. You know, and then there's a whole litany of other emails about presentations Bruce Chassie could make and, you know, sending the slide decks back and forth to Monsanto for edits and videos that he could make using public funds and what ideas did Monsanto have for that. And I don't know. It's a maybe different people are going to have different views on whether or not that's okay. But I think just knowing that that's going on is important because that helps inform people and helps them understand the context for which they're getting some of this messaging from mm-hmm. academics like Chassie. Yeah. And you know, these individuals also infiltrate health professions. So, for example, at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, Last year, there was a booth with GMO answers, Mm -hmm. and here was an example of what you described, you know, a website that is set up to answer dietitians' questions because consumers come to us to get the truth and protect their families, you know, tell me what to eat kind of questions, and here was a strategy to provide the health professional who, we don't study agriculture in the field of dietetics. I think that is changing with new dietitians coming on and into the field. But certainly 30 plus years ago when I was in my training, we didn't think about soil science. We didn't think about how pesticides might be interacting with soil microbes and might be impacting our guts or <laughs> impacting the way that we can absorb food. But the idea that there would be an industry presence under really a veil of, here, let me help you. Yes, we want you to be skeptical. So my first question is, if we really want to be skeptical, is who is funding this site and who is really at the core of providing the answers? Right. And that GMO answers came about, I remember sitting at a conference talking to one of the executives at the biotechnology industry organization, which is now Biotechnology Innovation, but they were saying very clearly, this state-by-state GMO labeling effort with California, which almost passed, Washington, you you have all these states that are trying to pass GMO labeling, and they said, we cannot do this. We cannot continue to fight this state by state. We need to win consumers over, and here's one way we're going, you know, one of the things that we're going to try to do. We're going to set up this website, and we're going to loaded up with all these experts who can answer all these people's questions in a way to try to reassure consumers. You know, again, smart, strategic on their part. It's very strategic, and it's very smart, and they have a lot of money invested, and they have a lot of money at stake. So you can't fault them for that. I mean, it's business. It's capitalism. I simply am trying to do the job of, (laughs) you know, making sure that the spin isn't all that you hear if you're a consumer. Yeah, and I want to get back to your job because I think that journalism is critical to protecting our democracy, and there's a really important reason for you to have the ability to write independent stories. 
And that brings me to an interesting boot camp that was sponsored by the National Press Foundation. And I thought this was so wrong because it was really more like a junket, you know, uh-huh. where isn't it nice Monsanto is funding a quote-unquote free reporting boot camp for food writers. And yes, in all fairness, there was an organic representative to describe a kind of agriculture that did not use genetic engineering and the herbicides that go with it. But there was a lot of support provided to those reporters. And what I really wanted to get at that I couldn't figure out how to do so was I wanted to know if the reporters' attitudes changed and how their reporting and stories changed as a result of that boot camp. And I didn't attend the boot camp, and I didn't track the reporting of the individuals. You know, it's just so much noise. There's so much noise going on. It is clear. You can tell there are certain individual reporters at certain publications who you can tell. They've spent a lot of time with people in the industry. In some of the emails that we got through Freedom of Information Act requests, you see direct conversations and references to certain reporters. You know, and I and you can see if you've been around as long as I have, you know the talking points, and you know when the industry has handed somebody a piece of paper and said, "Okay, here are like ten things," you know, that really would be great in your story, and then you see a story that has boom, those ten things in it, you know. So, and you see that a lot. You see that over and over and over again, and and you see things in stories that aren't aren't even factually accurate, you know. So you know that the reporter probably really doesn't cover this area, doesn't really know much, but. This is what's happening out there. And Monsanto and Dow and Syngenta and DuPont, they have reams and reams of highly trained people whose job it is to communicate as positive information as they can about their products. So, mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Carrie Gillum, an investigative reporter formerly with Reuters, covering the biotech industry, including the fight over GMO labeling. And in October of 2015, she left the news agency and became research director for U.S. Right to Know, a nonprofit that advocates for transparency in the food system. I want to get back to how we as unassuming readers can navigate the news. And I'm curious to know how exactly the news editorial content is controlled. Do reporters really have the freedom to go after a story? How are limits or how is pressure exerted on reporters that perhaps prevent them from revealing everything they know? Well, and again, you know, I'm sure it varies widely, you know, reporter to reporter, company to company, beat to beat, it it all depends. In the area that I've been covering, biotechnology, biotech crops, pesticides, the problem that I would run into is, of course, your editor comes under a lot of pressure. I knew, like every story that I would write, I knew if every word is not precisely, if you can't back up every single word as a fact, as truth, you're going to get hammered. And even if you can back it up, you're probably still going to get hammered, but it's going to make your life easier. And it just, I think it wears editors down after a while because they're going to get a call, they're going to get an email, they're going to get a letter looking for a retraction or a clarification. You know, I remember one, just I thought it was a ridiculous conversation with someone from the biotech industry that was very upset because I had said, you know, there are several, the companies cite several studies that say their products are safe, you know, but there are also several scientific studies that raise questions or indicate concerns about health and environmental impacts. And 
oh, they just were so upset because how dare I say there are also several studies. They only wanted us to say that there were scientific studies showing the safety. They did not want me to say there were also other studies that raised questions. And they wanted a correction or a retraction. And, you know, of course, you have to spend a lot of time then saying, but there are several studies that show concerns. And then they say, well, how many is several? <laughs> you know, saying, well, and then they say, well, maybe they are, but they're not valid. Well, right. Why are they valid? Well, because they don't consider them valid. You know, so you just go round and round. You spend a lot of time, and, and editors, frankly, don't want to spend a lot of time and waste a lot of time. So that it just, over time, becomes more and more of a pressure to turn you away from those stories and, you know, something that people aren't going to be so worked up about. So right. there, there's pressure in that way, I think. Is there also advertising pressure? Like, why would the editors be so concerned? I mean, clearly, any editor working with you, I've read your stories. They're high quality. I could go back and check your scientific references and not have a problem with them. But why would an editor question a reporter that has been such a good reporter and even take the time to listen to an outsider who clearly has a bias. And yeah, and again, I mean, that would vary from organization to organization. I mean, there's turnover, obviously. Organizations have new people come in, new editors, new managers. You know, they come in, they don't have the background, maybe don't have the knowledge, don't have the experience. Maybe they come from somewhere. At, at Reuters, of course, we didn't take advertising. That wasn't the financial model at Reuters. It wasn't based on advertising dollars. So we didn't have to worry about that. But I have had conversations with people who do work at newspapers, right, or mm -hmm. other publications that do rely on ad dollars largely from ag companies. And there's real pressure on them, of course, and, and they've talked about that. And, and then you have, you know, the larger newspapers and the ag industry has gone, you know, they go and they meet with their editorial boards. They go into schools. They go to rotary groups. Yeah. <laughs> They really are reaching out in every way they can to make their message heard. Mm -hmm. Well, you did a wonderful interview for the Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Counterspin, and I want to bring our readers to that site as well as your excellent reporting. Gosh, you've done so many articles now for U.S. Right to Know. So there's U.S. Right to Know, and then there's also FAIR.org, and I would lead our listeners to those two sites to read more and hear more of your story. Let's talk about some of the recent reports that you've done that you have found to be especially unnerving that you would like our listeners to know more about. So I'll, I'll leave this next part up to you. <laughs> Any stories that you, when you were writing them, you thought, oh, this is, they're all critical stories, I might add. But Oh, yeah, there are. I mean, the regulatory system is, is such a mess. Um, and, you know, we've written about that. People have written about it. The OIG has looked at it. My chief outrage, I guess, if you want to call it, or the story that still I just, it frustrates me, is the level of glyphosate, which is the chief ingredient in Roundup, the weed-killing chemical. And Monsanto patented it in the 70s. I'm sure everybody knows. You know, they sold billions of dollars worth of Roundup. It's off patent now. It's used in products all around the world. It's the most widely used herbicide, along with GMO crops. Use skyrocketed because these crops have been genetically modified to tolerate being sprayed directly with it. And, of course, as weeds have become resistant, farmers are using more and more and more of the Roundup to try to kill the weeds. So you have residues of glyphosate in your food. Now, 
Is that a big deal? Well, USDA is supposed to test food every year for pesticide residues to make sure that they don't exceed what the EPA says are safe levels. Do they ever test for glyphosate? No, they don't. You know, that I find that outrageous, and I've said that and written this many times. They can test thousands of foods. They test for over 400 different pesticides. They don't test for glyphosate. The FDA is also supposed to test. They have testing programs. They don't test for glyphosate. Now, I broke the story a couple of weeks ago that FDA finally has said, okay, I guess we'll go ahead and start testing for glyphosate. Consumer outrage is at a fever pitch after the World Health Organization declared glyphosate a probable human carcinogen last year. What a lot of people also don't talk about, they continue to want to say, even if it is in the food, it's probably fine. It's not going to exceed the EPA tolerance levels. Well, the EPA tolerance levels for glyphosate are among the highest allowed in the world, and they were increased just in 2013 when Monsanto said, hey, can you increase the amount of glyphosate that you say is legally allowable and safe on these certain foods? And EPA said, sure, and they did that. So we have everybody saying, yeah, it's probably on the food. Maybe we don't know. Probably only at trace amounts, nothing to worry about. But the regulatory agencies that are actually supposed to test and verify that haven't been doing it. And I, I find that outrageous. So it'll be very interesting to see with FDA saying that it will start doing some very limited testing, you know, how that shapes up. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I feel like we as consumers not only should have a right to know what's in our food with, you know, all the stories you've done on the GMO labeling issues, but also the fact that there's something on my food. You and I both live in the Mississippi River watershed, and we have glyphosate in our rainwater, in our atmosphere. I didn't give a corporation permission to pollute something that seems to be part of the commons, which is our water. And our children, you know, even as they're developing in utero, depending on what day they're exposed to these chemicals, the more we learn about birth defects and how minute parts per billion levels, how they can influence diseases generations out, it becomes, your work becomes all the more imperative. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I do think that this is a very key topic that deserves a lot of scrutiny, deserves a lot of research, and deserves a very serious look and treatment from our regulatory agencies. I don't think that's happened now. We had EPA very early in the 1980s. Their scientists thought there might be evidence of toxicity and links to cancer. And after some protests and discussions with Monsanto, they changed that stance. They have been conducting a new risk assessment of glyphosate that was supposed to be released last year. Well, it hasn't. It's sort of mysteriously in a black hole. And you ask them when they're going to release that. And they say, I don't know, maybe sometime later this year. It's a political hot potato, and it really shouldn't be. It should be just an issue of public safety. Our regulatory agencies should be devoted to nothing but, you know, accurate and true assessments of risks to the public. And and I don't think enough people either are aware or have thought that it's their position to stand up and to, to care. But I tell you, the corporations are in there, and they're weighing in, and they're saying what they want, and they're applying money and power and, and pressure. So the public needs to, to stand up, too. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, speaking about political hotbeds, one of the stories that you did on February 1st for U.S. Right to Know was big campaign cash for Clinton from Monsanto lobbyists. I think this is 
really at the heart of our problem, and I, I know it sounds crazy for a nutritionist to be talking about campaign finance reform and the importance of paying attention to our leaders who are supposed to be representing us, but the fact that, let's say, whoever gets elected to be our president or whoever gets elected to be our representatives in Congress, if they receive money from the biotech industries and if FDA were to find significant levels of glyphosate in food and water, which I'm anticipating, what is going to be the mechanism, the mechanisms that go into play that will maybe prevent this from reaching the public? Will you have to file a Freedom of Information Act to get to the heart of this data? What's going to happen, do you think? Yeah, and really good questions. And yes, I already filed a Freedom of Information Act request trying to get to the bottom of the discussions that have been going on right now. FDA is not really answering any questions. They've oddly, I believe, been very secretive about this. They did not want to talk to me about their move to test for glyphosate. They seemed very agitated that I had found the information out and was asking for confirmation. They finally did confirm it, but they wouldn't provide any details about methodology or timing or or, um, how they would report the results. And I've been told from inside sources that they are under a lot of pressure from industry and there are a lot of conversations going on, you know, around this issue. So I don't know how it will shake out. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. They, I don't even know what they're going to be testing. Corn and soy grain, you know, they say maybe some, some dairy products. It certainly doesn't seem to be very robust. Right. Okay, we just have a couple of minutes, so I want to put the ball back in your court again and give our listeners some idea of how they can find the truth and where they can go to get fair and accurate information about what is the most important thing that we do three times a day, which is eat, let alone drink water. Right. Well, you can come to U.S. Right to Know (laughs) to our website, our critics, members of the pro-biotech GMO industry, trying every way they can to shut us down, and they're very upset that we've been doing freedom of information requests to get documents and, and emails and to follow paper trails. They're very, very upset about that and really don't want us to stay in business. So we'd love support that way. You can find information that way. Um, I'd send you back. I guess I'm, you know, I'm a journalist at heart. I, I say the best, truest information comes from really good journalism, and there is really good journalism out there. The New York Times, they have some really good reporters. Stephanie Strom, she knows what she's doing. Andy Pollack knows what he's doing. Jack Kasky of Bloomberg, he's a pretty smart guy. I mean, you know, you look to the reputable outlets. Reuters, we got some people there who know what they're doing. You know, but both sides, the organic folks, the biotech folks, the natural food folks, you know, everybody has their own perspective and their own outlook and their own spin. And it is very difficult, I agree, to cut through all of that. But if you read enough and you research enough and you really do try to become educated on these issues and you realize, you know, hey, if this is coming from Monsanto, maybe i got to realize they want to sell more of this stuff. Or maybe if it's coming from the organic industry, you say, hey, maybe they want me to buy organic. You're just smart. You think about it, and you put it into context, and then you make your decisions. But you can't hide your head in the sand. (laughs) I don't think. I think it's too important. I agree with you. Well, Carrie, we'll have to leave it at that. But I want to thank you so much for being my guest. In closing, I want to thank Ms. Carrie Gillum, 
for joining us. She is an investigative reporter, formerly with Reuters. Now she is the research director for the U.S. Right to Know, a nonprofit that advocates for transparency in the food system. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. The websites for reading some of Ms. Gillum's work would be usrtk.org, and we'll provide that. And I also want to direct everyone to the fair and accurate reporting site, and I'll provide a link for that as well. Again, thank you so much, Ms. Gillum. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.